This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode number 64, entitled, What Does Son of God Mean in John's Gospel? Part 1. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I am your host. I'd like to remind our listeners that you can access and enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast in a variety of formats. You can listen to it online at biblicalunitarianpodcast.podbean.com. You can also listen to it on iTunes and on Spotify. We also have a Facebook group for discussing the episodes. If you'd like to join in, just search for Biblical Unitarian Podcast on Facebook and send a request. We'd be happy to have you. Having taken about a dozen episodes to carefully examine what the title Son of God means in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we now arrive at the Gospel of John. It is the popular opinion of many Bible readers that the highest Christological portrayal of Jesus Christ comes out of the Gospel of John. In fact, there are some listeners to this podcast who would dismiss the evidence demonstrated in regard to Son of God and the three synoptic Gospels in favor of what they feel the Gospel of John says. Clearly, in order to do justice to the subject of Son of God, we need to fairly and carefully look at the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John. So this will be the first of many episodes of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast examining the passages within the fourth gospel that describe Jesus Christ as Son of God, particularly to observe what the title means. Does Son of God refer to the second person of the Trinity? Does Son of God refer to a divine figure or someone who literally preexisted his birth before becoming human? Could it be that the Gospel of John regards Jesus in the same Christology as observed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a high human Christology? I don't know about you, but I'm excited to go through this study. I hope that you are as well. Let's begin to look at what Son of God means in the Gospel of John, looking this week into the references of the first chapter. Our first point is entitled, The Son of God Who is in the Bosom of the Father. We'll be looking at John 1.18. I'm going to read this passage out of two versions because there is a very important textual variant that we need to consider and solve before we move to interpreting this passage. So I'm going to read John 1.18 out of the Holman Christian Standard Bible to begin. This passage reads, No one has ever seen God the one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. That's John 1.18 in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Now I'm going to read the passage out of the New American Standard Bible. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's out of the New American Standard Bible. This passage is probably one of the most difficult passages in John's Gospel due to the textual differences in the second of its three parts. 
For the sake of keeping organized, I'm going to divide this verse, John 1.18, into three parts. So we've got the first part, which I'm going to call 118a, and this part reads, no one has ever seen God. So the part of John 1.18 that says no one has ever seen God, we're going to call 118a. The second part, which we're going to call 118b, is the disputed section. It talks about the unique or the only begotten one who is in the Father's bosom or at the Father's side. That's 118b. And the last part, 118c, where it says he has revealed him or he has explained him. So we got 118a, 118b, and 118c. The middle section, 118b, is problematic because of the textual differences in the early Greek text of John's Gospel. Although there are actually a few variants on this point, only two variants have been argued as possible candidates for the original reading. Either reading the unique son, or as the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it, the one and only son, or the unique God. Actually, the New American Standard Version translates it as the only begotten God. So just to be clear for our readers, we have textual variants. We have differences in the Greek manuscripts of John 1.18, particularly the middle part, the part that I'm describing as 1.18b. Some of the variants say the unique son, and some of the variants say the unique God. And you'll see these variants within your modern translations of the Bible, and if your translations of the Bible have good footnotes, they will make you aware to the fact that there is a textual difference on this particular point. As you can see, before we can even describe if this verse even deals with the unique son and explain what that son means, we have to actually address if this verse is talking about the unique son or not. The Greek for these variants is either monoyunis eos or monoyunis theos. It used to be favorable to understand this adjective monoyunis as only begotten, what we actually saw in the New American Standard Version, on the assumption that the yin within the adjective monoyunis referred to the act of generating. So formerly scholars used to think that the yin in the adjective monoyunis involved generating, so they would translate it as only begotten, assuming it was a word dealing with begetting or the bringing into existence of this god or son. Scholars today, however, have shifted their understanding by seeing that the yin is actually reflecting a nuance of genus, something having to do with the class of persons or things. This is why newer translations will use a phrase something like one of a kind or one who is unique or one who is only as their translation rather than using an older only begotten, something that I think was introduced around the King James Version over 400 years ago. So that kind of helps understand a little bit as to what that particular phrase is. Now that phrase is the same in our variants. The thing that is different is whether it is talking about the unique son or the unique God. Before attempting to interpret this verse, a decision has to be made in regard to the textual variant. 
It does not do the interpreter any good to simply pick the variant that best suits their own theology. Persuasive arguments based on the evidence need to be made, rather than subjectively picking and choosing which data we prefer. Textual critics are correct in pointing out that the early manuscript evidence is divided fairly between the two primary options. So there's a fair amount of manuscripts that say the unique son and a fair amount of manuscripts that say the unique God. It's not like it's 80% one way and 20% the other. It's actually fairly divided. However, when one looks closer at the evidence, the variants that say unique God are all localized within the Alexandrian Greek manuscripts, while the variants that say unique son appear much wider in both the East and the West. Put in other words, the unique God variant is localized, while the unique son variant is located in manuscripts discovered all over the place. Furthermore, the Gospel of John regularly describes Jesus as the unique son, or the only begotten son, in passages like John 3.16, John 3.18, and of course within the epistle in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. This actually makes the variant of the unique God suspect. It seems like it's the oddball out in comparison to the regular way that the Gospel of John describes the phrase monounice, linking it to the Son. Now the general rule of thumb when it comes to textual variants is that the more difficult reading is likely correct, and the unique God is certainly the more difficult reading of the two. But, Urban von Wald, in his Erdman's critical commentary on the Gospel of John, argues that this variant, the variant of the unique God, is so difficult as to be impossible. He regards the unique God variant as a textual corruption that sought to heighten the Christological understanding of the Son to a more exalted God. This fits well with the fact that the unique God variant is localized, and it makes sense that a change in the Greek text of John would be represented within a limited area of influence, rather than be something that is displayed all over the empire in the East and the West. It doesn't make sense that the copyist would demote the reference of God down to Son if the original reference was to the unique God? Why would copyist downgrade Jesus if he originally was called the unique God down him to a unique Son? That doesn't make any sense. All in all, a good argument can be made that the variant unique God was an alteration of the original reading, the original reading of the unique Son. Having made this argument, we can now turn to the text. John 1.18a is clear. No one has seen God. No one has ever seen God. No one has seen God at any time. You could translate it in any of those ways. This God clearly is the Father. The Father here, God, is the unseen God. No one has seen him. But surely, people saw Jesus. People witnessed Jesus. People observed Jesus within his ministry. That much is very clear. This would make John 1.18b speak of the unique Son 
who is in the bosom of the Father. A description, by the way, of the resurrected and the exalted Jesus, who is with the Father currently in heaven. Moving to John 1.18c, this part of the verse would indicate that this unique Son has revealed Him. Namely, the unique Son has revealed the Father, the Father being the unseen God. The verb used here in John 1.18c is where we get the interpretive term exegesis, the Greek verb exegeome. In other words, Jesus has exegeted the unseen God, the Father. So what does Son of God mean in John 1.18, assuming that the unique God is the original reading? Well, the Son of God is someone distinct from the unseen God, but is the unique one who is able to fully reveal and explain God to the world. The visible Son unpacks and unveils the unseen God. So the Son here is one who, in light of his uniqueness and closeness to the Father, is the climactic interpreter of God and God's will. This gives the Son of God a heightened sense of authority as the authoritative revealer of God within John's Gospel. But the Son of God does so as one who is distinct and distinguished from God. The Son of God here is the true revealer of God, while at the same time not being God himself. Jesus is the Son of God. Our second point is looking at the Son of God according to John the Baptist. John the Baptist acknowledges Jesus publicly as Son of God in John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 32 through 34. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. That's John chapter 1, verses 32 through 34. John the Baptist is the first person in the narrative of the fourth gospel to openly identify Jesus as the Son of God. The Baptist does so in the context of Jesus' baptism, an event that is central to the launching of Jesus' ministry in all four of our canonical gospels. The newly baptized and anointed for ministry Jesus, as in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is regarded as the Son of God. While the synoptic counterparts of John's Gospel announce that Jesus is the Son of God via the voice from heaven, the fourth Gospel notes how the confession comes from John the Baptist, although the Baptist admits that the God who sent him told him to look for the one who would be baptized in this manner. The narrative has already pointed to the authority of John the Baptist within John chapter 1 and verse 8, where the Baptist was sent by God authoritatively. So John the Baptist's confession bears the authority of God. When one thinks of the anointed Son of God, as we see in this passage, it is clear to hear the echoes of Psalm 2. 
Psalm 2 begins by speaking of Yahweh, the Lord, and his anointed one. That's in Psalm 2 and verse 2. The psalm goes on to describe this anointed figure as the king in Psalm 2 and verse 6, a newly installed king. The installation of this anointed king is described with the announcement of his sonship in Psalm 2 and verse 7, where Yahweh says, You are my son, today I have become your father. Son of God, according to Psalm 2, is a title given to the anointed king at his installation. All four gospel writers, including the Gospel of John, make it a key point that Jesus is anointed and installed as the Messianic Son of God at his baptism, making the baptism of Jesus the obvious place to begin their narratives of his life and ministry. So, what does Son of God mean in John chapter 1, verse 34? Well, Son of God here is a title for the newly baptized and installed Messiah, the Anointed One. Jesus, anointed with both water and the Holy Spirit, bears the authority of God's installed king. And if God installs a king, then God authorizes that king with considerable influence. In other words, Son of God in this passage is a title referring to one who is distinct from Yahweh, but who is installed and authorized as Yahweh's anointed king, his son, the son of God. No mention or indication of a pre-existent son of God who came down from heaven is found in the confession by John the Baptist. And remember, John the Baptist was sent from God, meaning he bears God's authority in what he says. This picture of the Son of God is consistent with the Christology of the Synoptic Gospels, what we have observed in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Our third point today is looking at the Son of God according to Nathanael. Nathanael confesses Jesus as the Son of God at the end of the first chapter of John. We'll be reading John chapter 1, starting in verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. That's John chapter 1, verses 47 through 49. Nathanael is the next person within the narrative of the Gospel of John, to openly confess Jesus as Son of God. This passage involves a dialogue with Jesus and Nathanael. Jesus first acknowledges Nathanael as a faithful and blameless member of Israel, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Not having been acquainted with Jesus thus far, Nathanael expresses his surprise and how well Jesus seems to know him, saying, how do you know me? Jesus answers him and states that he has observed him under the fig tree. The fig tree was a common place of Jewish instruction. So it is likely that Nathanael had spent some time there studying the Torah, and Jesus had observed or overheard Nathanael during such occasions. 
there's no need to assume that there is some supernatural miracle of knowing taking place here. Jesus himself admits that he saw Nathanael under the fig tree. Nathanael's response to Jesus, having admitted his knowledge of his character, is interesting. He does not assume that Jesus is the true God, as if only God could know the thoughts of men. Rather, Jesus is called rabbi, meaning my teacher, which is an interesting confession in light of the fig tree being a place of study hypothesis that I have suggested. Jesus is also called by Nathanael the Son of God, the King of Israel. There seems to be a connection in this confession between the titles Son of God and King of Israel. It seems as if one explains the other. According to Psalm 2, verses 6-7, which we referenced earlier, and is thus already in the minds of the attentive readers of the gospel thus far, the installed king is the Son of God. Both king and Son of God are synonymous titles. It is also interesting to note the connection to Jesus' confession of Nathanael as a faithful Israelite and the return confession of Jesus as Israel's king. So we have the double connection there of Israelite and king of Israel. The son of God slash king motif is also found in a crucially important Old Testament passage of 2 Samuel 7, particularly verses 12 through 14, where God covenants to King David and his descendants that they will continue the royal line of of kingly rulers. 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 14 says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That's 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 14. Now, as we see there, verse 14 identifies the Davidic king as son of God, not unlike what we observed in Psalm 2. So there's plenty of room to understand the son of God connection with the human Israelite king. And according to 2 Samuel 7, this human king is a descendant of King David. So what does son of God mean in the confession of Nathanael? Well, Son of God is the King of Israel, the Messianic ruler. Jesus is also identified as a teacher, as a rabbi, likely the ideal teacher in light of the Gospel of John's polemic against Jerusalem's teacher. The references in the Hebrew Bible that speak of the royal Son of God namely Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7, clearly distinguish God from the Son of God, never confusing the two. Nathanael's confession of Jesus as Son of God is consistent with a high human Christology, and Nathanael's confession would not have been heard by the original hearers as a confession of some sort of divinity. So in conclusion, we have observed that the Gospel of John, which many assume bears the highest Christological depiction of Jesus among the four canonical Gospels, 
seems to instead describe Son of God in a manner that is consistent with a high human Christology. The initial portrayal of Jesus as Son of God, if unique Son, is the original reading of John 1.18, regards him as one who uniquely interprets, reveals, and explains the unseen God. In doing so, Jesus remains distinguished from God, but functions as the authoritative son who shows us what the unseen God is like. This places Jesus, albeit the exalted and resurrected Jesus, in a considerably empowered role, but a role as the son who is clearly differentiated from God. The initial description of Son of God as the authorized revealer of the unseen God will be critical to understanding Jesus' various descriptions throughout the Gospel of John. So it is really important for us to begin our study by looking at John 1.18, regardless as to whether the initial variant originally was a reference to the unique Son. Jesus is openly confessed as the Son of God by John the Baptist and Nathanael. The Baptist does so in the context of Jesus' baptism, an event that publicly anointed him as the royal and messianic Son of God. Nathanael's confession says much of the same, identifying the Son of God as the King of Israel and the authoritative rabbi. So despite popular opinions, the Son of God in the Gospel of John, at least thus far in our study, does not refer to a pre-existent divine figure who came out of heaven or to the second person of the Trinity. Instead, the Son of God is someone who is not God, while at the same time is closely tied to the Father as his authoritative revealer and king on earth. Son of God as a title in the Gospel of John, fits better in a high human Christology than it does in a Trinitarian or pre-existent Christology. Please look forward to the subsequent episodes where we will dig deeper into the Gospel of John in its understanding of the title Son of God as it pertains to Jesus Christ. And if you think this podcast might speak truth to your friends or to your family, be sure to share it with them. They would really appreciate that, and I would appreciate it as well. If you enjoy the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, please consider supporting us. You can check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Again, you can listen to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast online, on iTunes, and on Spotify. Thank you so much for joining us today. Again, my name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.